Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me as always today is my colleague Joe Healy, and we are here to break down week 13 of the college baseball calendar. A big weekend ahead around the country. Got a top 10 series in the ACC with Louisville and Virginia Tech. We got a big rivalry series also in the ACC with Miami and Florida State. Top 25 series in the Big 12 and in the SEC. We're going to get to all of that. We're going to get to more than that because there's also a lot of, uh, I don't even want to call them under the radar, Joe. Like I feel like that's being disrespectful to the to Conference USA and, and the Missouri Valley. These are these are pretty solid series. We got we got a lot more to talk about this week uh, in terms of the preview than we did a week ago. It's it's that time of year. Everything just feels like a really big deal. So we're uh, we're gonna dive into all of that here on uh, on this edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. It feels like the last big uh, big bang of of the regular season. Oftentimes the the last weekend of the regular season, while giving us some tasty matchups, I'm sure I haven't looked ahead, but I'm sure it will. And I'm sure it has in the past, but there's almost like a, the combination of it being the last regular season weekend where things have, have started to wrap up a little bit. And also the fact that conference tournaments start like roughly five minutes after games in the last series of the weekend. And, and the fact that it starts on a Thursday, I think that also. Yes. This, the last weekend starts on a Thursday for most everybody. I guess the big West will be the the primary exception this year it used to also be the pac 12. Um, so yeah, the combination, it starts on Thursday. It's the last week in the regular season. So it's like, what else can we possibly glean from this? And the answer is something, but then, yeah. And then the conference tournament start the Tuesday and then really by Wednesday of the next week. So you don't have a lot of time to kind of reset. So all that kind of combines to make it to where this is like the last big weekend. And, and right now we, I mean, certainly with, this late, we, we have plenty to talk about. So it's, it's living up to that kind of feeling it has, which is, is something, something I know we've talked about in the past that, that, uh, that, that last weekend can feel a little bit, a little bit strange. And this is kind of the last normal weekend, if you will. Well, before we dive into these matchups, uh, and we are excited to get to them. I wanted to we get, we got a couple of items to, to get to first. The first of those is the field of 64 projections, uh, which publish weekly over at baseballamerica.com. And once uh, we get to conference tournament week, uh, they'll be updating daily. But for now, they're weekly. And today's came out. And, um, you know, this time of year, I, I think we, we kind of get this kind of question every year, Joe. But this year especially, uh, it's a very strange year when you look at um, the top 25, whether that's our top 25 or anyone else's top 25 versus the top 25 or beyond of RPI. And so you see several teams that are just completely out of whack. And 
you know, it happens every year that, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about how Fairfield was number two in RPI last year. Um, so it, it happens every year, even in a non-wonky 2021 style schedule. Uh, but this year it feels like even more, or maybe it's just that we spent two years kind of not having to deal with this kind of thing. But, you know, you have top, uh, top 10 Stanford uh, in, in our rankings, uh, not hosting in the projections, not even in the top 20 of RPI. Uh, you have Texas Tech, which is top 15 of our rankings uh, and like 43rd or something in RPI. Um, you have Georgia and Vanderbilt. Well, Vanderbilt is now number 25 in the rankings, but they're number four in RPI, five in RPI. Georgia, top 10 in RPI, not in the rankings. So very disparate. Many teams, DBU, Georgia Southern, sneaking into the top 10 in RPI, not in the rankings, not leading their respective conferences. And so that leads to questions about, well, okay, so why do your projections and your top 25, why, why don't they really look alike? Why is Georgia uh, hosting and not ranked? Why is Texas Tech, I mean, this isn't true this week. They're a number two seed in the projections this week. But a week ago, I had them as a three seed. Like, why Why does something like that happen? And the basic answer is uh, RPI. It is always RPI. But the differences between the top 25 and the projections, not only is RPI, that, that is a big thing. And in the projections, in the committee's mind, in the projections, we're trying to mirror what we think the selection committee is going to do. And in the committee's mind, RPI is like, it's one of their, their biggest pieces of information. But when Joe and I are putting together a top 25, we don't spend a whole lot of time looking at RPI. We're very cognizant of it, at least I am. Uh, but I'm not out there saying, well, you know, this team, we got we to gotta look at them because they're number three in RPI. Like, I mean, it happens, like I look at that and then you know, I try and find outliers and all the rest of it, but like, we're not, we're not driving Vanderbilt into the, the top 25 just because they have a great RPI that that's not, it's not a factor for us, but it is a factor for the committee. And the committee also looks at a whole bunch of other things that we don't care that much about. Um, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I'm, Joe and I care about record against premium teams but we don't necessarily care that oh they're only seven and ten against rpi top 50 teams again just not not a huge driver for us but for the committee that's a key piece of information and so there there are several things like that kind of baked into the way the committee looks at things that just don't equal the way we look at things and then the other broader point is that the top 25 is meant to be like this at moment in time not what we think can happen not anymore uh, in the preseason that's true but this time of the season, it's what has happened, uh, not what will happen. But the projected field of 64 is still just that it's a projection. Eventually, come conference tournament week, I'll stop talking about, well, you know, like I believe X will happen because at, just at that point, you kind of let it play out. But there are still two regular season weeks to play. Like we can still say, well, I think Georgia will beat Missouri that last weekend and maybe they'll take a game off of. Tennessee and maybe they'll take a game in the SEC tournament and now we're talking about four or five more SEC wins and you win 18 games in the SEC and you have this top 10 RPI and you know that's probably going to be a uh, a top eight seed and so that's how Georgia ends up there 
uh, you know, in, in the seed line, but not in the rankings. I think all of that is true. And just kind of like we had a topic last week on the, the recap episode. I forget what it was, but I, I don't want to muddy the water. So I will try to keep it concise because I, it's like a yes and here, like being a good improv partner here. All that is true. <laughs> I would, the, the finest point I can put on it is that when we rank the top 25, we are trying to pinpoint who we think are the 25 best teams. And yes, resume plays into that. However, we just kind of are ranking the top, the 25 best teams. What the committee is trying to do is rank the 25. And so in your, in your field of 64 projections, you are trying to kind of mimic the committee in a lot of ways. You're ranking the 25 or 16 for hosts, I should say, best resumes. And so it stands to reason with Georgia that, you know, it's a team that's lost, what is it, four of the last five series in the SEC. It's been a while since they've won anything that we be considered a, a marquee series. Um, we just don't think that's one of the 25 best teams right now, but because largely because of RPI and, you know, again, we could, we could do episode upon episode nitpicking and, and really picking on the RPI, but largely because of RPI, uh, Teddy and his field of 64 and the committee, I can just about guarantee you, as long as the RPI stays there is going to see Georgia as one of the 16 best resumes, because ultimately while they will say the RPI is just a tool I think it's more than that. I think that RPI tends to be the starting point. And I think those two things are different. RPI being a tool is kind of saying, this gives us an idea of how these teams are similar or different or is the, you know, compared to what their record is. Like a team like UConn, for example, has won 40 games, but the RPI tells you it's a good team, not an elite team. That's probably true. Um, That would be using it as a tool. I think it gets used as a starting point where it's kind of like they throw the top 50 RPI teams into a bowl and say, okay, here's our starting point. And then they kind of pick through the top RPI teams and toss out some outliers or pull in some outliers. Um, and so you create the situation that you have here, which is where, again, you, you came up with some other good examples. You know, DBU is really nowhere near the top 25 right now. Um, they may not sniff the top 25 again until maybe a postseason one if they do well in the postseason. But um, the RPI says they should they should be hosting. And so those are those are different things um we have to consider the fact that dbu might host because of that rpi so it's it's just two different considerations it's a very good question and we could probably sit here and have like a real debate and and try to wrap our minds around like maybe they should be the same thing i don't know um they're just not they're trying to accomplish two different things we're trying to look at the best teams and doing a committee type exercise is looking at typically the best resumes and rpi is going to be the lion's share of what makes that up i kind of wish we could actually but like largely or that that we could make the top 25 more what the committee wants to do but as long as the committee leans as heavily on rpi as it does i just don't even see the point you could just open up anyone that that aggregates the rpi and uh there's your there's your top 25 like uh you know joe and i both really like you know gary Parrish and his work covering college basketball over at cbs sports and his top 25 and one is intended to be like, this is what like the seed line projection is going to be like the, that's, that's what he tries to put his, his rankings as close to as possible. But because the committee, the basketball committee doesn't just sit there and say, well, this is the net ranking. And there is the, uh, there it is uh, the way the baseball committee seems to sometimes you're actually able to, you know, put nuance into those rankings rather than just copy and paste the, uh, 
the the, the printout from the computer. So yeah, that's uh, that's the difference. And anytime you see anything out of whack or what you think might be out of whack in terms of uh, uh, the, the, the field of 64 projections versus what humans are telling you about things, just you know that it's, it's probably RPI. It, that's probably all it is. All right, so second item I wanted to touch on here, Joe, is uh, a recruiting item. When we had our recruiting uh, rankings podcast, when I, when I came out with the 2022 recruiting rankings following signing day in November, I noted that uh, at the time, he was the number one player in the class, Tamar Johnson. Now, uh, if you look at our draft rankings, he's the number three prep player in the 2022 class. Uh, had not committed. He has now committed. He committed on Tuesday of this week, and he selected Arizona State as uh, where he will be attending next year. And interestingly enough, his brother, Travell, who plays for Georgia Tech, is also now transferring to Arizona State. So both Tamar and Travell committed yesterday, uh, Tuesday, as we record this on Wednesday, um, to Arizona State live on uh, perfectgame.tv. So Tamar is still projected to be a top five pick in, uh, in July, and he is projected to sign and sign for a whole bunch of money and not play for Arizona State. And so you might be wondering, like, why does this even matter? Why, why did he bother committing? Why, did, why do I care that he committed to Arizona State? And I would say that the biggest reason is ASU is not going great right now. We haven't talked about ASU much on the podcast, uh, but ASU is like the sixth or seventh best team in the Pac-12. They're fighting for a spot in the Pac-12 tournament at this point. Uh, and so Willie Bloomquist's first year as ASU head coach just is not going to the historical level that you see at Arizona State. This commitment, however, and the reasons Tamar laid out for committing, Tamar being a middle infielder and Willie Bloomquist having that experience playing in the infield at Arizona State and in the big leagues, and Tamar said things about how he thought that, uh, you know, Willie Bloomquist would be able to help him develop and uh, how Arizona State would be a good place for that. All of that sounded an awful lot to me, like a pretty significant endorsement of what Willie Bloomquist's vision for the future at Arizona State is. And, you know, yes, this kind of commitment is unlikely to yield any, you know, it, it again, tomorrow's probably never playing for Arizona State. But I, I think at the end of or near the end of a very difficult season in Sun Devils baseball um, for, for a first year head coach to get that kind of endorsement, I, I do think that's a big deal. I think that's something that you can recruit off of going forward. Yeah, it's I mean, if nothing else, it's marketing. And I feel like we've had this discussion before on the show, just that, you know, you you this is worth the work. Well, a couple there's a couple things here. It's worth the work because you, know, you don't want to do this. You don't want to spend a lot of time in recruiting man hours because they're 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 precious. But you don't want to do this with every highly regarded guy. But it's worth it to be in this space as a college recruiter because for one, it, it is marketing, right? Like these kids do, like in a lot of cases, follow each other on things like Instagram. And if you've got you know Tamar out there, you know really pumping up Arizona state and making Arizona state very prominent in his social media stuff. Like there's a cool factor there. 
and that can trickle down. It, maybe you don't get a kid, you know, like Tamar, but you get, you know, some kid who commits because, you know, if it's good enough for tomorrow, it's good enough for me. That's a pretty ethereal thing, but I think there is something there. Arizona state has certainly has some history doing this kind of thing. I remember Eric Hosmer <laughs> committing there some, you know, whatever it is, 15 years ago at this point. So um, they've played in this space before it's a big enough brand. They, they are able to do that kind of thing. Um, I think the other thing is that maybe it's not Termar Johnson, but if you continue to have success in this type of space, maybe it's just one out of every 20 kids, one out of every 15, whatever it is, at some point, you're probably going to get one of those. You shouldn't, if you're doing a good job, if the program is winning, if you're developing players, all the things that coaches are going to try to do anyway, like if you're recruiting in that space, whether it's because for whatever reason, the kid doesn't get drafted as high as he thought he was going to get drafted. Um, I mean, God forbid an injury, no one's rooting for that, but that kind of thing happens sometimes or whatever it is. Like if you spend time with these guys, you get a commitment. Like every once in a while you, you are, if you're really operating at a high level, you are going to get one of them and that can really make it worth it. Whereas if you don't even play in that sandbox, you're never going to get the opportunity to have that happen. Yeah. If you want to be an elite program, you have to recruit elite players. And in baseball, that means that sometimes they're just going to go pro. And that's a reality you have to live with. Tamar's a little bit of a different case because when you're committing them as freshmen or sophomores in high school, you can always say, well, you know, who knows? There's a lot of time to go between now and then. Who really knows? Uh, in this case, we're a couple months away from the draft and everyone's pretty darn aware of what what's happening with uh, uh you know, the, the 20, the top of the 2022 draft class. Uh, so this one feels much more like marketing, but yeah, if you're just generally speaking, um, you know, Matt McLean at UCLA turns down the first round to, to sign uh, or to, uh, to, to go with the Bruins, Dylan Cruz presumptive, like, like early favorite to be number one overall pick next year shows up at LSU. Um, you know, things like this happen, Kamar Rocker, Jack Leiter, blah, blah, blah. Like we can keep going. It's how you have like really high level talents in college. Um, you know, sometimes it's about developing them. Like certainly Spencer Torkelson was not regarded in quite the same way. And obviously he turned out to be a really great player for Arizona State. Adley Rutschman, same way. Like they were both known, but they were not known as uh, potential like top 50, top 100 picks coming out of high school. Uh, but there are many cases where those kinds of players, you know, a Dylan Cruz, a Brady Singer, a Matt McLean, were that kind of player coming out of high school and live up to that in, in college. So, uh, yeah, well, it remains to be seen if Arizona State can capitalize on this in terms of that that marketing buzz. But Tamar, from my understanding, is just a the kind of player that his you know fellow high school players flock to want to be around and so if that guy is now committed to being an arizona state booster uh on some level i, I think that's a, a really big deal and you know with his brother going there tomorrow also said he intends to regardless of whether he signs pro or goes to college he intends to get his degree from arizona state so he seems to be in and if he's going to be in that's that's a a great thing that's a great asset uh, to, to have in your recruiting and in your marketing arsenal. Yeah, I mean, one other thing I'll say, and I don't know that'll be the case here and, and the kind of money that a player stands to make in the area where Tamar Johnson is expected to be drafted is, is a different deal altogether. But 
I know somebody will probably ask or it will, or it will get brought up or whatever, but like, you know, there is the opportunity that NIL does change some of this stuff. Now it's baseball. So we have to understand we're working on a different level than we are with football and basketball and women's basketball and those types of sports. However, like, is there, is, are there some cases where a player that might otherwise get drafted is, you know, maybe is more of a fringy prospect could get brought to campus because of NIL stuff like sure. So another thing to keep in mind, I don't think we've really seen the full uh, depth or breadth of what NIL will or won't be for baseball because the market has just been slower to that sport. And I think the chaos kind of around it right now is probably just added to that being a little more unsure of what to make of that. But uh, one other thing to keep in mind, I, I don't think it's necessarily going to play here, but it is something to, uh, as this continues, if when you talk about the biggest brands in college baseball, which Arizona State wants to be one, it has been one in the past. Um, that is something to keep in mind that could play a role at some point in the future. Yeah, that is, uh, that's a good point. And I think it, you know, a, a lot of times in other sports recruiting today, you just assume that anyone committed somewhere because they got paid. Uh, right now, that seems to be the, the snap judgment of a lot of the end result of a lot of basketball and football commitments. Uh, that is in all likelihood, not the case here um, because it was a huge deal when that one quarterback whose name we still don't officially know, right. Uh, committed somewhere and got paid $8 million for it. And the athletic reported on that. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, the show, do you, do you have a better summary of that? The, that some collective agreed to pay a high school quarterback in the class of, I think, 2023, $8 million um, for his NIL stuff while he's in college. That, to my knowledge, is like the biggest, loudest deal that is out there. $8 million is a lot. That's what people are talking about is a huge money deal for, for football. Um, the top five picks are all pretty generally valued in this year's draft class or last year's draft class, the top five picks were all valued around $7 million or higher. So, you know, I'm not saying Tamar gets picked in the top five is definitely signing a $7 million deal or $6 million deal or anything, but that's the kind of money that we're talking about uh, for, for high level. Yeah. The number pick number five last year in in the draft was 6.18 million. Was, was the pick value. So, I mean, if, if you're talking about uh, a baseball player going that high in the draft, going top, even top round, you're talking about somebody's going to have to pay them multiple millions of dollars to compete with MLB. Uh, we're, we're just not in a space where that's happening in baseball yet. So uh, th- this is one sport where you don't have to wonder, did they commit and, and did they commit because of a, a big NIL deal that we're going to find out about later? Just cleaning it up. I, I think it's kind of a wink, wink thing. No confirmation, uh, probably just due to some rules involved here. But uh, the eight million dollar quarterback is purported to be Tennessee commit Nico Iamaleava from Long Beach, California. Yes, and it is a. I, I, I hope that, I that number is correct. Name, but eight million dollars. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, if that's the number we're talking about for a high level football player, like we're not we're not there for baseball yet. Uh, MLB can still pay those guys more, but we'll. We will see if uh, it, it changes, uh, you know, seniors coming back to college or a marginal um, prospect one way or the other, or a marginal draft prospect, I should say. And that is something that I am, uh, that, that's a story that, that's in the works. Uh, so hopefully look for that in the next uh, couple of months or so. All right, Joe, let's, uh, 
let's take a break here for for our ads and then we'll come back here and we'll uh start in our 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 week 13 games we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed if you need to hire you need indeed indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast ditch the busy work use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and indeed doesn't just help you hire faster 93 percent of employers agree indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent indeed survey what I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. All right, welcome back to the Baseball America College Podcast. We're diving right in here with our Week 13 slate. And Joe, let's uh, let's just go to this top 10 matchup. We've got Louisville. We've got Virginia Tech. Uh, these are two of the hotter teams in the ACC. Miami still leads the ACC overall standings if you're looking for a number one seed in the ACC tournament. Miami's still, still in the lead there. But Virginia Tech and Louisville chasing close behind both Firmly in the mix to be top eight seeds in uh, the NCAA tournament and uh, just a generally fun series it's setting aside all of the postseason implications. These are two very strong offenses uh, and two pretty good baseball teams. Yeah, it should be a fun series. It's teams that it strikes me that it's teams that kind of want to win the same way. They're both pretty offensive teams. Um. I think they're both pretty deep, you know, deep offensively. It's not, they're not necessarily either of them really the most star studded lineups, even though Gavin cross exists for, for Virginia tech, but he got off to enough of a slow start this year where it kind of felt like he ended up getting folded for better or worse, ended up getting kind of folded into just this larger narrative about Virginia tech's offense being what it has been. Um, I just think so far Virginia tech has proven to be better at winning that way. Right. I mean, just in terms of by that, I mean, cause the records aren't that different, but that, I mean, they do have a couple of guys they really trust on the mound. Griffin green, drew Hackenberg in particular, um, Hackenberg, I think has really taken even a step forward there to where he's like really the guy and Griffin green is, um, has just been solid and, and kind of struggled last week against Villanova, but that'll happen. Weird weekend. Um, 
So I think they're better at it in that regard. Like I feel like they can trust a couple of guys in the mound a little bit more so than what Louisville can at this point because Louisville really has been riding this roller coaster all year with its pitchers where it's you know not just up and down in terms of the performance but they're they're moving guys in and out they're really trying to mix and match so I mean credit where credit is due they're they're doing a pretty good job with it in terms of the wins and losses but it's week to week can you trust Jared Poland and Tate Keener and Riley Phillips and um you know Michael Prosecchi like so it feels like they're still searching to a degree that Virginia Tech just isn't. And that's not to say that Virginia Tech isn't a little vulnerable in that regard, because I think if you're going to beat them, that is kind of the blueprint is, hey, they're probably going to score some runs on you, but can you return the favor a little bit? I just feel, especially with this series being at home, I just feel a little more confident in Virginia Tech's ability to get a little bit more on the mound um, to stymie the Louisville offense more so than the other way around. Yeah, I think it's a very important point here that it, the series is in Blacksburg. Louisville is not terrible away from home, uh, but as always, they are playing better at Jim Patterson Stadium than away from it. Um, 26 and five at home versus 500 away from home. And uh, I, these are two offenses, like we can talk about the pitching. And I think it is notable that Virginia Tech has these two starters that they really trust a lot and, and a solid closer as well. Uh, but I mean, for me, this is all about the offenses. Virginia Tech is averaging 8.8 runs per game. Louisville's averaging 9.1. Virginia Tech is, you know, right up there with the best home run hitting teams in the country. They hit a lot of them in Blacksburg. Like it, it to me, this is all about, yeah, I mean, you could look at it as which pitching staff is going to be able to contain these offenses, but I, I think it's more just which offense is going to be louder this weekend and you know i mean you have to like what both of them are bringing to the table and, and it should be said louisville can hit home runs right there with them so if this gets turned into some sort of home run derby like i it's not just just because virginia tech uh is, is right up there with tennessee in terms of of home runs nationally um that doesn't mean louisville can't keep pace they they you know dalton rushing and metzinger and all these guys, they, they have big bats and, and you know, they, they can hit for some power as well. So uh, I expect the ball to be flying this weekend, especially as, as we get into May here and the weather gets hotter. I, I just expect the ball to be jumping all weekend long. Yeah, the, the offensive side for Louisville, I think what's kind of impressive for them is, you know, I have to eat a little crow with this just because I didn't think, I didn't think this was like a particularly, I thought it was a, the offense was better than the pitching that has been borne out. Um, but I kind of thought it was going to be pretty reliant on Metzinger rushing Masterman, that kind of Bianco to a certain degree. Like that was Napchik. That was going to be the core, but it was going to be pretty top heavy and they were going to go as that group goes. But a couple of things have, have really happened here where it's, they've gotten big steps forward or big debuts from younger guys, Jack Payton, Logan Beard, Isaac Humphrey. Like those guys have really become stars pretty quickly here. And then I think it's easy to overlook because he's a little bit further down the statue, but Levi Usher's quietly having a really nice year. He got off to such a slow start. Like he did not look good when I saw him opening weekend and he was even slow a little bit beyond that. Um, and that's reflected in the fact that, you know, he has a two, what is it looking now? 293 overall average, but an ACC play is hitting 330. So 42 points better in ACC play. It just tells you kind of how hot he's been of late against theoretically better pitching, but it's, you know, he brings a stolen base element. He's 31 for 33 in stolen bases. And this is the kind of player that I think Louisville 
was hoping he would be when he got off to such a hot start in 2020. And we thought like, my goodness, this guy is one of the best, one of the best offensive threats in college baseball. He's a guy who might be an elite draft pick, maybe a first round pick. And it just didn't happen last year. And then he got off to that. I saw him opening weekend. He just didn't look good. I thought, Oh boy, this, you know, this might be a situation where we just misevaluated or, you know, a guy who was disappointed because he's still on campus and didn't intend to be necessarily, and it's just not going to work out. And he's turned himself into a really nice piece in that Louisville offense. So Louisville has done a really good job with a few different guys there to make this just a really deep offense. Uh, briefly, before we move on, Joe, um, Louisville lost a series or split a series, not lost a series, split a series at Wake Forest last weekend. Now it goes to Blacksburg. Finishes at home against Virginia. This is a team that has moved into the top 10. Uh, it was, like I said, projected as a top eight national seed. Um, this is a really hard finish for them, though. I like are what, what do you feel like would be a good finish over the, you know, considering they've already split last week and at Virginia Tech, home to Virginia, then the ACC tournament, and, and how much do they need to do to build some momentum ahead of the uh, ahead of the NCAA tournament? I mean, I think it's kind of one of a couple of things like you either need to win one of these two series tall task, or if you don't do that, first of all, don't get swept and then go into the ACC tournament and play well and feel like feel good about that because there also is the ACC tournament sitting out there and all of that format does not really provide the opportunity for teams to make big runs there unless you go undefeated through it. It's also but, not something that historically Louisville has seemed to care. Correct. About. Yes. Um, but I think you just kind of need to not get rolled in these couple of series. I mean, the reality is that their RPI is in a good spot. You know, they really only need to win um, two or three games the rest of the year. I think it's three to stay in the top 16. I mean, compare that to Virginia Tech, like they have to win five or six games the rest of the way to stay top 16. And that's not the be all end all, uh, but that is a factor. And so I think Louisville's pretty safely as long as they don't, like I said, don't, I mean, don't go one and five in these two series, but Outside of that, like I think they're pretty well locked into what they are as a team. Um, but just as far as momentum goes, I think they'd want to try to want, get one of these two series. And I'm, I'm guessing the Virginia series more so than this one. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, they, they, they're going to feel good about playing Virginia at home next week. Obviously, it'll be a tough series. That's their annual crossover rivalry series in, in the division play. And you know, so they're they're very used to playing UVA, but Obviously, that's going to be a tough one. This is a tough one. I just think that they they have to be careful that this doesn't snowball on them because you know you do want to have some sort of momentum heading into the NCAA tournament, and uh, very easily things could could start going the wrong way here. But I, I think that they, I mean, first of all, this is a really talented team. I'm not not suggesting that they're they're just going to fold up here, but they uh, they I would expect that they uh, they find some some form, whether it's this weekend or next weekend and, and are able to, you know, get some of that nice, uh, nice momentum going, uh, ahead of regionals. I mean, I'm not, uh, just real quick. I mean, I, I don't, I don't feel like I'm wrong, but maybe I am like, there's really not, I mean, if, yes, if they go zero and six or maybe even one and five, but as long as they're, you know, not getting swept in these series, like they're okay. As far as hosting goes, right. I mean, I feel like they've just, they've worked up so much RPI equity that it just feels like it's going to be hard for them to, to fall to a place where they're not going to be hosting. Yeah. I, I think that's right. I mean, you're looking at a team that's 13, seven and one against top 50 opponents and um, you know, has, has played a top 30 schedule that, you know, should that number should only go up from here. Like I, I feel like they're in a, they're in a very strong spot 
in, in terms of that. And, um, you know, I don't think that you're, you're looking at a team that, that would get swept in, you know, really fall on their face like that. So, right. um, you know, I, I, I do think that they'll, they'll be fine from that standpoint. I, I just think of it more as a, like, you want to, they, they're already coming in in a place because they didn't win that Wake Forest series. And now they have these two super challenging series to finish ahead of an ACC tournament, which we, you know, with that pool play format where you only are guaranteed uh, two games. And I realize only anyone's only guaranteed two games, but you're guaranteed two games, but it's a weird, weird situation. You're not necessarily going to play on consecutive days and all the rest of that. Um, I, I just w- would think that they want to avoid having a poor four week stretch leading into regionals and having to just turn it back on once, uh, once regionals start. All right, Joe, let's stick in the ACC here and let's go to Miami and Florida state, a great rivalry series, of course. And, uh, you know, also a pretty significant one, Miami, as I mentioned, when we were talking about the last series, Miami still aiming for, uh, that number one seed in the ACC tournament, uh, still in the lead for that, but got to finish strong here. Florida State uh, in the hosting mix. There are like 25 teams that I feel like still can host. Like, it's ridiculous. Florida State definitely in the hosting mix would would need a really good finish, and that would start uh, against their rivals. Miami coming off of a series sweep of North Dakota State as they were out of conference last weekend. Uh, Florida State. Uh, got that got that series win as well. So coming in with a little bit of momentum, but it's been an up and down month for Florida State. And uh, they keep kind of bouncing in and out of hosting. This weekend, though, would be uh, a really significant one if they are able to get a series win. And then also on Friday, we're going to get just uh, one of the better matchups on the mound that you can ask for with Parker Messick taking on Carson Palmquist. Um Messick for Florida State is leading the nation in strikeouts. Palmquist has been, uh, you know, a, a really reliable ace at the front end for Miami, potentially an All-American candidate. Just two, uh, two really good left-handers going at it to start out this series. Most importantly, a matchup of C-A-N-E-S Canes versus N-O-L-E-S Knowles. It's true. Um, it's true. Reading is, fun- reading is fundamental. Um, spelling in this case. It really feels like with Florida State, it, it just kind of boils down to like how good are their best pitchers on a given weekend? Like because their offense really isn't they have some moments, but their offense really isn't lifting them to anything. It just feels like they kind of ride the wave of what they're getting, particularly from Messick and Hubbard at the front of the rotation. Um now I will say, because of that, like I do kind of like Florida State in this series, especially being at home, because when you compare it. At their best, I like Florida State's one too, as good as Palmquist is. I mean, he's going to be game for that matchup against Messick, but you know, I, I like Hubbard versus Ligon, and then they both kind of have Sunday problems. Well, um, they so both ha- the, the thing is, Florida State, I don't know how they're going to line it up. Last weekend, they announced Messick TBA TBA because we're recording this on Wednesday. I haven't seen Florida State's uh, probables, but they they split the lefties last week. They put Montgomery in on Saturday, so I don't know how they're going to do it. Yeah. I mean, either way, they've, so they've got a third game issue, you know, whether it's Montgomery and it for it was Ross Dunn for a while. And, and Miami's kind of similarly, they get some decent stuff from Alejandro Rosario sometimes, not all the time. But they both have, I, I like the actually like the bullpen pieces in both cases, whether it's, 
you know, Florida state has some long guys in Scalaro and Crowell, uh, you know, for Miami, they've got Walters, who's as good as anybody on the back end. But, uh, you know, Gage Zeal has had some nice moments. Uh, uh, you know, Ronald Gallo has had some nice moments. So, like, they actually have more depth, I think, bullpen-wise that I've been giving Miami credit for this season. So that feels feels all, like, pretty fairly – even the offenses feel pretty fairly even in terms – we've spent a lot of time talking about um, Florida State's offense kind of being, like, a little meh. And, you know, if you take out – Yohandi Morales, which I know you can't do because he is a big part of that offense. Like Miami's offense is not really electrifying, at least not in its current iteration either. And so I'm just going to take Florida State and make on the assumption that their two big left-handers are going to do what they need to do to lead this team to a series win. I do really like that this series is in Tallahassee for Florida State. They're a team that's played much better at home and they're going to get great crowds for this one. Uh, so I, I think that is significant. Miami, we talked about it before that North Dakota State series that they really needed to use that as an opportunity to get right because, uh, you know, they went up and they lost to Georgia Tech and they lost to Virginia Tech. And, um, you know, it, it just seemed like things might be getting away. Now, we'll find out if what happened last weekend was a situation of them getting right or just them playing against a decent team, a team that's winning the Summit League, but not a team that's able to, to actually challenge them in a way that Florida State will be able to. Uh, this is also, uh, you know, an, an intriguing matchup just uh, for for the the in-state rivalry piece of it. And, uh, you know, I, this is uh, one of the, the rivalries that we ranked in the top 25 when we did did uh, did rivalry rankings a couple of years ago. I mean, I, it's just a really fun one. There, there are so many um, connections there and guys that play together and you know, in some cases transfers within within the two programs here. Uh, but I, I, I love this rivalry. I think it's a great one. And uh, so I'm really excited to, to see it with all the implications that it's carrying this season. Oh yeah, this is the Alex Terrell Bowl. I kind of forgot yeah. about that. Um, <laughs> speaking of transfers, it's actually funny that came up because my last thing on this was going to be, it's interesting that you know these were two programs that that have tried to inject transfers directly in the lineup. And so for Florida State, you've got Terrell, you've got Brett Roberts, who is from Tennessee Tech originally. Miami's got Maxwell Romero Jr., who is from Vanderbilt, and Jacob Burke from Southeastern Louisiana. This Burke is Jordan our, Carey and Erasure. Indeed it is. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, we even had Jay, the point being here is that Jacob Burke has been the best of the bunch and we had him lower than even Jordan Carrion too. I mean, we had him the lowest of those five we've just mentioned in our top 100 transfer rankings at the beginning or in the off season going into the year. And um, he's been the best one. He's been really dynamic for Miami and uh, their offense would be, uh, would be certainly be a step behind where it is if it weren't for what he's done this season. The important thing is, is that we had him on the list. That's what we're going to take. So we're going to take with, right. from this discussion. That's exactly right. Even if he was, I think he was 70 something, I think. It's okay. He was there. That's right. Uh, okay. So yeah, big one here. Uh, some implications in terms of the ACC title race, but also big one for, for hosting for Florida State. Alrighty, let's, uh, let's keep it moving. Let's head to the SEC. We got Arkansas hosting Vanderbilt. Uh, you know, we mentioned in the Monday wrap-up, Arkansas went on the road last weekend, won a really big series at Auburn to remain in first place in the SEC West. That's where they remain. They're another one where RPI just does not match up. 
They're 23rd in RPI as we record this. And uh, they could use the, the boost that beating Vanderbilt would provide because Vanderbilt is top five in RPI. Uh, Vanderbilt uh, is coming off of a big series win on the road themselves at Georgia. That got them back to 500 in the SEC. They are 12 and 12 uh, with two weeks to play here. The way I see it, Vanderbilt needs five SEC wins, whether that come, whether all five of those come before the SEC tournament or they have to pick up a couple of them in Hoover. I think they need five SEC wins to host. Um, maybe they could get it done with four. I think that would be an anxious week, uh, but they, uh, they could really use something this weekend because you're not going to, regardless of your RPI, you're not hosting with a 500 or worse conference record. And so I, I, I just really think that, uh, that Vanderbilt needs to, to close well, and that starts this weekend in Fayetteville. Uh, notoriously, Joe, not an easy place to play as a visitor. Uh, that is, yes, that is what I've heard. I've been told by reliable sources that it's tough to play there. Kind of an interesting, uh, really both ends of this are kind of interesting from a hosting standpoint for me, because you laid out the Vanderbilt case exactly right, where it's like, the RPI has been trying to help Vanderbilt host all season and it just needs to win enough conference games. Arkansas is kind of on the other end of the spectrum where the RPI is trying to hold them out and Arkansas just continues to stubbornly win games. But the Boyd's world needs report says that they need to do a little work to stay in top 16. And now if they are the second best team in the sec, they maybe don't have to be top 16 to host. Yeah. I'm here to tell you that if they win the sec West, I don't even care what, <laughs> what the RPI says. For sure. But it would not be the most shocking thing in the world if they are not top 16. Like, let's say they're closer to 20. Like, knowing the committee that we know them, like, we, I don't think we deserve to be shocked if they held to the RPI so close that that ended up happening. I would be surprised. But the, the larger point is really just that Arkansas is coming at this from the opposite end of the spectrum here, which is if you flipped Arkansas and Vanderbilt's RPIs, it would make a whole lot more sense than where they are now. Um, because Arkansas continues to win games in the SEC and it's RPIs, like I said, it's being a little stubborn. So um, kind of an interesting thing on, on either side there. Vanderbilt continues to be a confounding team um, in terms of you look at, you know, you, you look at the numbers, you look at the players here, you, you know, you look at the talent they have and the fact that nothing has really gone super wrong. The offense is top heavy. Yes, it is very Dominic Keegan, Spencer Jones, Enrique Bradfield centric. Um. And yet it just feels like this team has a touch or two below where we thought, well, certainly before we thought they were coming into the season, we had them ranked really high, but I mean, even based on just understanding that, okay, they're not that good. Like, it just feels like they haven't quite gotten going. And, and maybe it's a situation where this team is going to be a better postseason team. I think there's certainly an argument to be made for that. I mean, one of their better arms has been pitching in the midweeks and that's a strategy and it's been working and it's probably part of the reason their RPI is where they are. But Devin Fittrell has been great on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. He could very well be in a regional rotation. One of their top three guys, like they might well, actually so, get better in a regional setting. Yeah. I mean, notably there, Fittrell did not pitch last night. There's a report again, we're on Wednesday. Vanderbilt hasn't released probables yet, but there's a report from Ari Gerson uh, of the Tennessean that Fittrell is going to start on Friday. Um, the fact that he didn't pitch last night and the fact that they rearranged the rotation a week ago to move McIlvain and Holton back a day, all of which seems to indicate that Fitrell is moving to Fridays. He's a freshman. He's been great on Tuesdays to your point, Joe, that is part of the reason why their RPI is good that 
had been, I had seen quotes from Tim Corbin kind of a defense of keeping him on Tuesdays was, you know, keeping their RPI good. Uh, and finally, it seems like somebody realized in Nashville, like, hey, we need SEC wins. We don't need RPI points anymore. And so Fitzgerald's moving into the rotation. Now, if he is starting on Friday night against Connor Nolan for his first SEC start in Baumwalker Stadium, like, oh, boy, did they not do him any favors in terms of, like, the timing of this thing. Uh, but I am very interested to see how that how that looks. Um, you know, they're able to do this in part because Bryce Cunningham uh, was very good and he was able to start on Tuesday. Uh, but this is a, a, a Vanderbilt team that's gone a lot out of freshman pitchers, Fatrell, Holton, Cunningham. And uh, they're going to be asking for a lot more now because, yeah, I, I think he is, he deserves to be in their rotation. He deserves to be in their the regional rotation. Uh, but, you know, this is a guy that is going to walk into regionals having started two or three SEC games. Yeah, it's an interesting matchup if he does need to start on Friday. I mean, to talk about different ends of the spectrum, I mean, you've got a freshman who's thrown just really in midweek games, you know, starting on Friday in that environment, you know, opposite Connor Noland, who's like had all the ups and downs possible for a pitcher in the SEC and has been there and done that at every level of the SEC. And so uh, getting in, by the way, just getting Connor Nolan back to something closer to what he's been for most of the season until last weekend seems pretty big for Arkansas because they, he, it's such a game changer for them when, whenever he gives them, you know, the six or seven solid innings that he was giving them for the first 10, 11 weeks of the season. That really kind of sets them up for success the next two days. It throws them off kilter when they, when they don't get that. And that to me is going to be going to be a key for Arkansas this weekend. I would definitely agree with that. That just makes them so different, but I, th- the bottom line here is Arkansas just keeps winning. And uh, I kind of expect them to do that this weekend. So I said, Joe, Vanderbilt needs four or five, probably five wins in SEC play, um, including the tournament, to to host. They're at Arkansas this weekend. They're home to LSU, probably playing on Tuesday in uh, in the SEC tournament, which means that they have to win to keep going in the tournament. Uh, what do you think? Is, is Vanderbilt going to do it or not? I think so. Yeah, I mean – I've had a lot of faith in this team throughout the season that hasn't necessarily been rewarded. Uh, I always just felt like they were about to make a run and they just never quite have, but they've, but it's also not, not been a team that's cratered either, you know? Um, so I, I just, I continue to have some sort of faith that like there, there is kind of like a, a pretty high floor on this team because they are so talented. And so, you know, I, I would expect them to pick a game off here I think they'll probably, you know, I, I like them to win that series against LSU at home the last weekend of the season, especially with with so much to play for on Vanderbilt's side. Um, and then, you know, it, it, the draw could be pretty positive for them in the SEC tournament. Obviously, it's it's even with just two weeks left to go, it's kind of hard to exactly visualize what those matchups are going to be on the Tuesday in Hoover. But I would like them to get that there. So I think it's going to be close, but I think they're by the skin of their teeth, I would guess they get there. They're going to have to work real hard. Uh, they need something this weekend. I'm not saying they need to win the series, but they absolutely cannot be swept. And I wouldn't expect them to be swept, but uh, it, I need to see something this weekend because what, what I've seen out of Vanderbilt so far has been inconsistency. And I want what happened last weekend in Athens to mean something. I want them to build off of that. Uh, now we have to go out and we have to see it and they have to do it in one of the toughest places to go play in the country. So we shall see this weekend. All right, let's go to uh, the Big 12 now. Uh, We got Oklahoma State 
and Texas Tech. Oklahoma State is, of course, in first place in the Big 12. We talked about that. Uh, we talked about that. And that was completely unintentional. We talked about that on Monday that, uh, you know, because TCU went out and uh, got upset, Oklahoma State had kind of taken a commanding or moved into the driver's seat at the very least in the Big 12. Texas Tech still has something to say about all of that. They will get their chance this weekend at O'Brate Stadium. Is that your attempt at like a Tim Tadlock impression? Like let's accidentally? Just, let's say that that's true, but it's absolutely like it's not. <laughs> Fair enough. How long does it feel like it's been since Texas Tech won that series against Texas? Like did I that mean, even like, happen this year? Yeah, like, it's like six. Did or eight that happen months before ago. the pandemic? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and like I don't. We could do this all day with all kinds of all manner of results all across the country. But it's one of those where you cast an eye to it, not just because Texas has turned out to be, and that, that really felt like the kind of the start of it for Texas. I know you could probably draw a different starting point, but that did really kind of feel like the start of it for Texas because it was a moment in which you kind of looked at Texas having a little bit of a bullpen meltdown and you're like, Oh, you know, um, and didn't really seem to handle a moment very well. Um, so you can do that. And also I think, if you wanted to kind of look at it from Texas tech side and kind of wonder if, well, maybe we got a little bit overheated about that is just that those games were won in such a specific way that I just don't think you can recreate um, throughout the season. If those situations arise, sure. But like that was a very kind of seemingly chaotic series that Texas tech really just took advantage of and, and won that series, which is to their credit. They, they, it seems like they like to win games that way. They like to play games that way, but winning two extra inning games that were just bonkers. Um, not something you can really recreate. So really since then though, it's the West Virginia series win at home is really the, the other good thing on the resume. So they've really come into the series with, with a lot to prove. And, um, quietly though, like I, some of the personnel has really come together here that I, I, I find myself kind of, even though that the resume not, isn't necessarily blowing me away. And I just said all that the one, two in the rotation of Brandon Birdsell and Andrew Morris in conference play in particular has been really, really good. You know, Birdsell's got a 225 ERA in conference. Morris has a 272 ERA in conference. You like that. Now they are pretty reliant on those two guys. Those guys have thrown a, a good number of innings this season. So like they're looking for those guys to be workhorses. Um, but offensively too, it's a little bit like Louisville where you and I have both said this, where and we mentioned it enough kind of early in the season that it felt like maybe harping on it. Like they were really leaning on a group of role players to become something more than role players. And like, wouldn't you know it, like Kurt Wilson, Ty Coleman, Parker Kelly, having good years. Like those guys really did take a step forward. I mean, Kurt Wilson in particular has really done a nice job this year and has found a completely different gear than anything we'd seen from him before. So, you know, kudos to that coaching staff for getting that out of them because I wasn't sure it was going to get there. So this has turned into a really, really nice team. It's just one that still, I feel like, I mean, we're here basically with, you know, with six games left or seven, if you have a midweek. And I still feel like they are in a position where as high as we have them ranked and, and all that stuff, that they're still a team that's out here, maybe with something to prove. I definitely agree with that. I mean, it, they have one of the stranger resumes out there. They got credit for beating Texas at a time when beating Texas meant something a lot more than what it means today. Texas, by the way, top 20 RPI, like only plays Kansas still in terms of the big 12, like not ruling out Texas as a host. 
uh like as they, they really can back their way into something there i mean they'd have to earn it but like they, people have forgotten about them i feel like and they're out there tech is coming off of a bye week i'll be very interested to see how that affects them here like did they use that time to realize that they have this other bullpen arm that they can go to or did Brandon Birdsell like need the break or, you know, JC on need the break, you know, did somebody need the break that they just got? Um, Oklahoma state coming off of a sweep of, of Southeast Missouri state. They then lost in walk-off fashion to DBU on Tuesday in a game that I don't think really mattered a whole lot of anything, except that DBU again, passed Oklahoma state and RPI and is now number three in the country, regardless. Um, the, it's just been a while since either one of these has played a conference game though. And so I'm interested to see what comes out of that. We saw last week, Oklahoma state moving Trevor Martin into a a starting role. And I'll be curious to see what that looks like in big 12 play. If you're Oklahoma state though, and you're trying to go out and win the big 12 for the first time since 2014, this is the kind of series you absolutely have to win. There's no question about it. Just go out and do it. It's in front of you. You're at home, go out and win the games. And uh, you know, Oklahoma State's had some close calls in that last decade. This is their best chance, though, and, and uh, they, they have a, a golden opportunity with this series being at home. Feels like two teams that have similar things going for them in that you know, Oklahoma State's really at a point now where even before Victor Madero's, you know, injury questions came up, it was really you could trust Justin Campbell, and then you were like kind of half and half on Bryce Osmond, right? There was like a good version and a not so good version of him week to week. You know, Tech now is in a position where it might be in a little, feel a little better with Birdsell and Andrew Morris, but both those teams kind of have like relatively narrow pitching plans where they feel pretty good about those two days, not as sure about the third day. The difference maker here, I think, is Oklahoma State. They just have more dynamic bullpen options. You know, when you talk about Ryan Bogus and, and Roman Fancelcar and, and Trevor Martin, we'll see if that continues with a Sunday thing. That seems like an interesting plan, but also I know it's tempting to have him as a dynamic bullpen option. So we'll we'll kind of see how much that sticks. But and Nolan um, McLean too. Don't forget about him. I mean, yeah, I, Nolan, I feel like without Fancelcar and McLean, like they wouldn't be able to do what they're doing with Martin. For sure. Yeah, McLean has really felt like he's gotten a lot more comfortable. Um, you know, in that in that bullpen role as, as time has gone on. So. They just have more dynamic bullpen options is, is the long and the short of it. Texas Tech is kind of moving some guys in and out. Like there was shout out Don Williams, the Lubbock Avalanche Journal, I think. Um, I think that's what the name of it is. He, he, I guess, had some, there was a media availability with Tim Tadlock and uh, Trendon Parrish, one of their most often used bullpen arms. Numbers aren't particularly good, but he, I think he leads the team in, in saves. Um, is going to be out for the rest of the next two weekends anyway, leading up to the Big 12 tournament with an injury. Uh, the good news there is Brendan Girton uh, is a guy with some experience, like a guy they've used in past years and has had pretty decent numbers when he was healthy this year, is on the way back, maybe will be available at some point down the stretch. So a couple of like uh, developing things there, but the long and the short of it is that Oklahoma State's bullpen, I just feel a lot better about um, in general, but also going into this weekend. Alrighty. Those are the headliners. There's a lot going on this weekend. We didn't touch on anything in the Pac-12, and there's some interesting stuff, the Big Ten, et cetera. But let's go under the radar. Like we said at the top, this is one of the busiest weekends. Just feels like everything is still possible uh, with two weekends left. Uh, But let's go under the radar, Joe. 
the one guy who periodically sends us emails or leaves a re- leaves us reviews and complains that we don't talk about the West Coast series is going to be extremely upset. Um, which I, I think you know we talk plenty of Pac-12, right? Like I'm not. It's not like we're out here just like giving them short shrift. We talk plenty about them, but I guess maybe maybe just certain episodes, uh, you know, get listened in on, and, and we don't happen to talk any Pac-12. Anyway, I digress. Um, okay, a few things here. Uh, start off with the thing of the most import, but probably the furthest off the radar. Uh, the Patriot League semifinals are this weekend. Uh, they have concluded their regular season. That is a thing they do every year where they they they, they finish early and they, they start their conference tournament. Um, it's a like a, tr- a true tournament kind of thing where they semifinals are best two out of three series that advance to a finals weekend after this one, best two out of three. So it's four seed Holy Cross against the top seed Army, three seed Lehigh against two seed Bucknell. Uh, Army is the prohibitive favorite here for a number of reasons. They're kind of, we've talked about them. We've talked to Jim Foster on this podcast. They are really a, a, I was going to say budding dynasty, but they really kind of are already a dynasty in the Patriot league. Um, and kind of a shocker, no, no Navy in the Patriot league semis. Um, Navy typically is a pretty good foil for army in the Pat league, but not, not so much this year. So that is, uh, something to watch there. Um, also a really general one, pick a Southland conference series. Um, I tweeted going into Sunday's action last weekend. There was a five-way tie at the top of the Southland conference friends. There are only eight teams in the Southland conference. So a majority of the conference was tied for first place. Now the Sunday games happened. So there was some movement there, but currently there are five teams all within one game of first place in the Southland conference. So yeah, pick a series there. They're all, they are all almost quite literally all important. Um, in the Sunbelt, uh, the Raging Cajuns of Louisiana or Louisiana Lafayette, however you'd like to, to refer to them as, um, they are going to Texas State. They are very bubbly. The Cajuns are winning this series uh, would probably put them right back in the more serious discussion to be an at-large team. Texas State continues to roll in the Sun Belt. Uh, you know they've been ranked now for most of the season. They are not a host candidate. The RPI just isn't there. But but man, they are really. Um, they're really laying waste to everyone not named Georgia Southern in the Sun Belt. In Conference USA, UTSA is going to Southern Miss. Kind of a similar deal here. Southern Miss needs to kind of get right. They've now lost two straight series in Conference USA. They're still in the hosting mix in large part because of the RPI. Um, but I would recommend they start winning some games. That's just my um, kind of unprofessional opinion there. That if they want to host, they probably can't continue to lose series. UTSA, meanwhile, uh, also a bubble team. We saw last weekend Old Dominion just really by winning a series against Southern Miss went from not even in the bubble conversation to Teddy had them in this most recent version of the field of 64. Despite Uh, what they tried to do on Tuesday. Right, yeah, Tuesday was not helpful, losing to VCU. Um, I also wrote about Old Dominion um, in three strikes this week. Um, It's the old three strikes curse. You know, you lose a midweek game whenever I'm trying to write about you. UTSA could probably do something similar um, with the series win against Southern Miss this weekend. So that is something to watch as well. There's also just CUSA is another league right now. There's so many, uh, there's a pretty good handful of bubble teams in the mix there, but there are a lot of kind of important series, whether it's between two good teams or cases where one team is playing a team that has an RPI of like 220 and therefore can't really afford to lose. So there are important series all over that league. Um, okay. In the big 10, uh, this particular series is not all that important, but I, I mentioned Purdue at Northwestern. 
simply as a way to get you to pay attention to the fact that, and Teddy kind of pointed this out to me the other day, that it is an absolute melee at the bottom half of the Big Ten standings to try to get into the Big Ten tournament. Um, so Purdue and Northwestern are two of the teams that are in that mix. They are playing each other. So that is just something generally to watch. Uh, who's going to get into that Big Ten tournament? It's kind of an interesting deal this year because teams like you know, Nebraska and Ohio State and Minnesota and Indiana has been better lately, but for most of the season was looking like they might be in trouble of missing the Big Ten tournaments. There are some pretty proud programs that are in real trouble there. So um, that is certainly something to watch in the big picture. But finally, the uh, series we're going to talk about at a little more length is in the Missouri Valley. Evansville is going to Dallas Baptist. Evansville is leading the Missouri Valley Conference, which might be a little known fact for many, <laughs> many of you listening. Uh, they are one game ahead of Southern Illinois. Uh, this is interesting for a couple of reasons. One is that if Evansville wins this series, they're really coasting home and they, because they've got Evansville, or I'm sorry, they've got Valparaiso the final weekend of the season, Valparaiso in last in the Missouri Valley Conference. So you'd feel pretty good about them wrapping up the regular season title, especially with a series win this weekend. Dallas Baptist, meanwhile, they just need to get a move on. We've referenced them a couple times in this podcast already. The RPI is such that if they win the Missouri Valley, um, they're going to be in the host consideration. Now, they might need to win the next six just in a sweep fashion to get that done because they've already taken on a pretty good number of Missouri Valley losses, more so than than we would have expected. So that's really kind of what's interesting here um, is can DBU get it going here? Because um, they kind of they probably need to win the Valley to host, but that is definitely on the table with their RPI. And, and kudos to Evansville, of course. I mean, it's a um, program that hasn't had a team this good in, in at least several years. Um, offense has been good for Evansville. They're leading the Valley. If you filter the stats through just Missouri Valley games, they are leading the Valley in hitting. Um, they've got some veteran pitchers, Shane Gray, Drew Dominic, guys like that. And they've kind of done what I thought DBU could do this year in the Valley. I don't, I don't think the Missouri Valley is the league this year is particularly good. Um, so I kind of thought DBU could maybe not waltz through it, but could at least pretty leisurely make their way through it and win the conference. And it kind of turns out that's what Evansville has done. I mean, they lost a series early in conference play to SIU. And then since then, they've really kind of been breezing through it. And that's what I thought DBU would do. Instead, it's been the Aces. Um, but this is an opportunity for DBU. They're just about out of time, but they could get it going this weekend and still end up hosting a regional, I think. Here's my question for you. Um, what if DBU doesn't win the regular season, but wins the conference tournament? Do, is that going to be too late for them? Like... Or is a trophy combined with the, like that makes them the automatic qualifier. Like that in some ways makes them more respected uh, to have that versus the regular season title. Like I, I genuinely don't know what to make of DBU and their hosting case. I like, I we'll find out, but I, I it's, it's the most confusing situation out there on the board. Yeah. I think, I think I'm kind of with you. If you, if they were going to win one trophy and not the other, Assuming they don't finish like four games off the pace in the vat, like they don't get swept this weekend or something like assuming that, that it's a close second um, or even third and they win the tournament. Like, I think they might prefer that, um, but it, it is going to be an interesting test case because, I, you know, we don't have the, the data, especially not right here in front of us at our fingertips, but it would be pretty unprecedented for the committee to look at a team that has an RPI that high and just kind of go, hmm, no, on hosting. 
Like that's just not something they've, first of all, they don't really ever have to grapple with that kind of thing. But if DBU is sitting here with a top five RPI and, and by the way, like the quality of wins they have, it's not like they're sitting here with nothing on the resume. They did some work in non-conference play. So they've got things in the resume. Um, it's just been weird how they just have been kind of flat in conference play. So they're not going to have nothing to their name, but the biggest thing is that it would be very strange. I think regardless of kind of how it plays out, if, if DBU does end up with a top five RPI that they would get bypassed to host. I just have a really hard time thinking that that, that kind of, uh, more gets crossed in this case. Meanwhile, Evansville started the year one and seven were shelled by NC state. Like that was, that was the start of the Tommy takes situation. Indeed. And uh, like it started the year with a 24 to six loss. Didn't really get right for a long time. Like they did sweep Tulane in new Orleans and there's something to be said for that, but they followed that up by getting swept the following weekend at Northwestern. Um, they, it, it, they, they lost their first Valley series of the year to Southern Illinois. And then something just has clicked and they can't lose. And I don't, I don't get it. I <laughs> like it's it's remarkable just how how much of a switch flip it was. It wasn't like a slow build or anything. It was it really earnestly just looks like a flip got switched and Evansville was like, oh, okay, this is what we're doing here. And uh yeah, I mean this weekend is a uh, is the weekend for them. If they're able to go out and carry this momentum that they've had to Dallas, I mean, this is a team that uh you know is winning the valley and uh has laid waste to a lot of really good Valley teams lately. I mean, they, uh, they, they've, they've just been, been steamrolling and I don't, I don't know what we'll get out of them this weekend. I mean, you still like DBU overall, but you know, I wouldn't have expected Evansville to be in this situation at all. So who am I to, to put a ceiling on them now? I, I just think this is a fascinating series from, from so many different angles. Yeah, no doubt. It's um, yeah. It, it's funny because we're just always going to default to DBU here because of the talent, you know, given the situation, but yeah, they just, you know, um, the offense for DBU has been good, not great. And I, I thought that was going to be like a really, really dynamic offense with huge steps forward for, for Jace Grady and, and, and what have you. And it just, it hasn't quite, quite been that. Um, but you know, the, the benefit of, at least in conference play, the benefit of what they did in the non-conference though, is all their big picture goals quite literally are still sitting there waiting on them. Um, and they just, they kind of have to pick them up and run with them. But so far they've, they have failed to do so to say the very least. Bonus pack 12 talk here. Oregon state is at Arizona this weekend. Uh, that's a intriguing series, less intriguing than it would have been if Arizona hadn't gone out and lost to USC last weekend. Uh, so Arizona, uh, has a really tough finish here there against Oregon the final weekend. So they uh, it would behoove them to get a move on here after and, and pick themselves up from that really tough USC series loss last place USC. Uh, and UCLA has lost five straight after they lost on Tuesday to Fullerton. They have destroyed their RPI um, to a point where there really is no margin for error left for UCLA. I don't know what's happened over the last five games. Uh, but they uh, they need to find something uh, and get it turned around in a hurry because otherwise UCLA is going to go from a team that we had in the top 10 to being on the wrong side of the bubble here. And uh, yeah, it's it's been a, a confounding like week for, for UCLA. The good news finally with UCLA is 
they do have a series with Oregon State to end the season. Like even winning one game there might do an assuming they win the Washington State series, which I know we can't necessarily assume. Washington State has made a habit this season of, of kind of playing spoiler, but um, you know, if they win that series and then win a game against Oregon State, like that should fix some of the art just by virtue of playing Oregon State, their RPI is going to be helped. So maybe that's what just all they really need here because everything else looks pretty good about that team. Um, so we'll see. But yeah, so they are they are really have their backs against the wall at this point. All righty. Well, we're going to to leave it there. We'll have plenty more over on the website throughout the weekend. So make sure to check out baseballamerica.com. And we will be back here with another edition of the Baseball America College podcast on Monday as we come at you twice a week during the regular season. Mondays to, to recap the weekend, Thursdays to preview it. Uh, so make sure you are subscribed to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, be that Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please hit that subscribe or that follow button and rate and review if you can. It does help us a lot and it helps other people to find the podcast. So uh, we really appreciate everyone who takes the time to do that. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill and Joe is at Joe Healy BA. Busy weekend around the country. Uh, we're excited for it. Hopefully you are too now. So we'll, uh, we'll thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time on Monday. He's Joe. I'm Teddy. We'll see you next week. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.